How's everybody doing tonight? Good. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name is Ryan. I am the pastor of adult ministries here at The Well-Crafted Life. I'm excited to be able to share with you a little bit tonight about our series, King Me, where we're talking about power and how we use power, how it can affect us and the way in which it can impact the way we relate to God and what God calls us to. And one of the things about power is when we get power, we tend to lose sight of its primary purpose at times, and we tend to perhaps operate in ways that are advantageous to us. And if you are a parent in the room, you probably know what I'm talking about, even though you don't want to admit it. And that comes in the statement, because I said so. If you're a parent in the room and you have said, because I've said so, then you have used a power move. You've used a power move, which more often than not is just a time where your child is asking you some question of why, and you've decided it's not worth your time to reason it out, and so you're going to play the power card and say, because I said so. And that happens. Whether right or wrong, we do it. But I noticed something uh, as I have become a parent, and I have two kids. My five-year-old is Liam, and my three-year-old is Adelaide, and I adore them, and they're waving to me in the back row, Uh, and so they are awesome. But one of Liam's favorite things to do is to wrestle, and so we will wrestle together, and what ends up happening is he'll ask if we can wrestle, we'll start wrestling, and then he'll tell me, no, daddy, you're breaking the rules, you can't tickle me. And in any sort of parent-child wrestling dynamic, you obviously give the power to your child. And so I'll say, okay, I won't tickle you. And we'll start wrestling again. And then ultimately it'll be, no, daddy, you're breaking the rules. Well, what rules am I breaking? Is that you can't hold me down. Okay. And then on it goes. Eventually it's, no, daddy, you can't use your arms. And ultimately he uses his power that has been given to him in that moment to win a victory in our wrestling match because I am now paralyzed and taking a beating because I can't move. And for him, it is the greatest victory in the world. And if you ask him, I bet if you ask him tonight, he would say it was a fair fight. But it's not a fair fight. He just, in his frame of reference, has used his power to his advantage and lost sight of what real fairness looks like. And he doesn't know that, and that's okay. But there are times where our power blinds us to what's actually right when we think we're doing what should be right. And we lose sight of what God wants for us. And you'll see this throughout your life, throughout any story that you read, but most importantly, you're going to see that in our text tonight. If you open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 19, And you're going to see in this story the interaction of King David, or sorry, King Saul and David. And this is the beginning of the end of their relationship. And throughout this story, you're going to notice that Saul thinks he's doing what's right, all the while he is actually missing out on what is actually right, what God wants for him. And what God wants for Israel. But to understand that, we have to go back a little bit. And we have to look at 1 Samuel 18. You can turn to 1 Samuel 19. I'm going to read from you in 1 Samuel 18. 
And it says this in 1 Samuel 18, describing what it was like when they came back from battle after David had won a victory against the Philistine. It says in 18.6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is the beginning of the end of their relationship. Can you see why? Saul's king. He's just come back from this victory over the Philistines. And who's getting the credit? David. And he's being elevated over and above King Saul. Well, Saul's response is in verse 8. It says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul kept a close eye on David. Treat him with suspicion because he was getting more credit than Saul was. Saul's power was starting to feel a little shaky because Saul placed his power in his notoriety and his victory and his reputation and he wanted to preserve his kingdom. And so he couldn't have this little guy who just killed a giant getting more credit than he. And so, like anybody who's been kind of upset and crossed, Saul does what all rational people would do, and he decides to uh, have him killed. Does that seem a little extreme? Maybe something's off in his head. I mean, have you ever been wronged at work? Maybe someone got more credit for something than you thought they deserved when you've done all this hard work and gotten hardly any recognition. Did you go and stand around the water cooler and be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to off him. (laughs) That doesn't seem reasonable. Saul's out of his mind. He has lost sight of what his purpose is, but he thinks that he's right. He thinks he's doing the correct thing. And so he goes and he approaches Jonathan in 1 Samuel 19. Starting verse 4, he approaches his own son, who's friends with David. And he says this, that Jonathan was asked to go and capture and kill David with some of Saul's men. So Jonathan warns David about what's happening, and then Jonathan goes and speaks to his father. and says, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let's not, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Jonathan brings reason into the conversation. He brings a reality back for Saul that ultimately what David's getting credit for was not of David's doing. It was of God's doing. But Saul's desire for power has so blinded him to the work of God that that he views it all about, well, I want credit for my victories. I want credit for the wins. And Jonathan reminds him, no, it was God's doing. And so then Saul relents. But it says something interesting about Saul. Because what we're going to see next is that 
Saul puts David, this warrior who just killed this mighty giant Philistine, puts him back in his place by having David sit at his feet and play the lyre. Does that seem weird to you? The mighty warrior now sitting at the king's feet playing a musical instrument? It seems like maybe Saul's saying, hey, I'm going to put you back in your place. Well, what happens is that Saul's relenting of wanting to kill David, his insecurities, his problems, well, those start to rise up. He starts to lose sight of what God has called him to. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 9, it says, But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. If you've ever thought that Scripture was boring, this is as good as any Game of Thrones episode you could ever watch. Because here you have this king sitting there on his throne holding his spear with this young man playing his harp. And what does he try and do? He picks up his spear and he throws it at him. David has to duck and dodge. But there's something important to know about this passage. And it says that an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul. I always struggle to understand what does that mean? What happened to Saul? Well, in Young's literal translation of this particular passage, it says this, and a spirit of sadness from Jehovah is unto Saul. Saul has so lost sight of his role before God that this depression, this sadness has overcome him. It's blinding him to the realities of what God is doing. And now Saul is operating in what he thinks is right, but his mind's gone. And he's missing out on what God really wants. And so Saul begins in his depression to seek after David, first with the spear, but then David eludes him and goes to the prophet Samuel and hides out with Samuel. Saul discovers this, so he sends some men to capture David. What ends up happening is those men arrive where David and Samuel are, and they're there to capture him, and they start prophesying for God. They start worshiping God. They've lost sight of what Saul wanted because they've become so consumed with what God wants. Saul hears of this and not being the sharpest tool in the shed, he sends another group of men to the same spot to Samuel and to David. That group of men arrives and again, they start prophesying. They lose sight of their mission and they focus on God and they start prophesying for God. Not to be deterred, Saul does it a third time. He says, hey, go and get David. They go, and what do you think happens? They start prophesying. They start worshiping God. They lose sight of it. Saul, again, he's not getting it. He goes, hey, I'm going to go down there. If you want the job right, do it yourself. And so Saul goes to get David, and he arrives, and Saul starts prophesying and worshiping God. He lost sight of his own mission. He's been corrected by God. He lets David go because he's worshiping, but Saul still doesn't get it. And a little while later, he pursues David again with 3,000 men. And there comes a moment where Saul, you know, like any battlefield warrior, uh, well, you always wonder, when do they go to the bathroom? So Saul wanders into a cave to go use the restroom 
just so happens that David's hiding in this cave. And so he sneaks up and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, but he lets Saul live. And later on, he goes out and says, here's a piece of your robe. Basically saying, I could have killed you, but I didn't because your God's anointed and I know what God wants to do. And Saul says, you are more righteous than I. I, I. I am so sorry, I won't pursue you again. But do you think that he held true to that? No. His power, he again focuses on his kingdom and his power and preserving himself and what he thinks Israel needs. And he goes after David again, losing sight of what God wants. Taking more men after David, David sneaks into the camp where Saul is sleeping and he steals some things from near Saul's head and then later on says, hey, here are the things. While you were sleeping, these people were supposed to protect you and I snuck in and stole these things. I could have killed you again, but I didn't because you are God's anointed. See, David's view of power is for God's purposes. Saul is blinded to God's purpose and thinks he's doing the right thing. His power has lost sight of God. And so often in our lives, that that happens to us too, that we think we're doing the right thing, but it's contrary to what God would have us do. And this story in principle, not in, in correlating aspects, but in principle, it reminds me of another story. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's an age-old tale. Do you guys like old tales? Some of you, the rest of you are asleep. It's okay. <laughs> the age-old tale of Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, all right, there we go. Avengers Infinity War. If you haven't seen it, there's a character in this movie. The concept is that this bad guy, Thanos, you begin to question whether or not he's really a bad guy. Because he thinks he's doing the right thing. He wants all this power to accomplish his purpose. But his view of the right thing is corrupted by his power that he desires. And he doesn't see that it's actually the wrong thing. He thinks that he is out to enact mercy upon the universe. But the reality is that Thanos doesn't understand mercy. He doesn't get it. He's blinded by his power. What you see is Thanos doesn't get mercy at all. This isn't true mercy, but true mercy looks very different. Oh, yeah. You're much more of a Thanos. I take it the Maw is dead. This day extracts a heavy toll. Still, he accomplished his mission. You may regret that. He brought you face to face with the master of the mystic arts. Where do you think he brought you? Let me guess. Your home? It was. And it was beautiful. Titan was like most planets. Too many mouths, not enough to go around. And when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. Genocide. But random, dispassionate, fair to rich and poor alike. They called me a madman. And what I predicted came to pass. Congratulations, you're a prophet. I'm a survivor. Who wants to murder trillions. 
With all six stones, I could simply snap my fingers. They would all cease to exist, and I call that mercy. And then what? I finally rest and watch the sunrise on a grateful universe. The hardest choices require the strongest wills. On February 2nd, 1816, John Adams, the second president of the United States, wrote a letter to his friend, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, years after they both had left office. In his letter, John Adams said this, Power always thinks that it is doing God's service when it is violating all his laws. Whether heroes with superpowers, or kings of Israel, or movie producers with unlimited clout, or stars with the power of celebrity, or politicians who act as servants of the people, or bosses who control the livelihood of their employees, or parents dictating the direction of their children, or siblings dividing an inheritance, or pastors who lead churches. Power always thinks that it is doing God's service when it is violating all his laws. Which means when we have power, we're typically unaware of our struggle. We don't know how power has corrupted our thinking. We don't know how power has disengaged us from a grasp of reality. That's why Jesus talks about power a lot when he was on this world with us. In Luke chapter 22, there's a story about Jesus with his disciples. Luke uh, Luke 22 verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus says the the Gentile lords call themselves benefactors. There was a ruler who was over the the area that is now Syria and and also what is now Galilee about 100 years before Jesus came into the world. This man, Antiochus II, was the ruler. And as rulers would do in those days, he created coins, they minted coins, and they had his image on them, which we still do today. Uh, And when he minted these coins, he actually put his name on there, Antiochus VII, but he added a title to it. Not king, not emperor, not ruler, not dictator, not president. The title was Benefactor. It's the title he chose for himself over the people to whom he served as a dictator. Side note, it's not what his subjects called him. See, the danger with power is it distorts our grasp of reality. So someone who wants to wipe out trillions of people can say, I call it mercy. Do you ever get in God's way? Okay, that was not like a, you know, let's have interactive. That was not one of those moments. 
You know, yeah, I get in God's way all the time. Well, maybe some of us are aware that we are that we do, but a lot of us don't. Even, we're not even aware that we get in God's way. But I think what happens to us all the time in this world is we end up getting in God's way, in the way of what God wants to do in this world. Second Corinthians chapter four is part of a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to his friends in the church in the town of Corinth. And he's describing for them how to live their lives, but he knows they're wrestling with this issue of power. And so he writes to them in chapter 4, verse 1, this statement. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul starts out his conversation with them about power by saying, we have this ministry that we have based on God's mercy, not based on his power. We have the gift of a relationship with Christ, not based on God's power, but based on God's mercy. I have a ministry as pastor of Lakeside Church, not based on God's power, but based on God's mercy. You have a ministry, whatever it might be, whether it's working in Kids Fest or working with teenagers or leading a small group or mowing the lawns around the property, whatever your ministry might be. Your ministry is based on God's mercy, not on his power. And so Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Do you ever lose heart? I lose heart. I actually wrestle with that just about every day. The alarm goes off and I roll over and I start getting out of bed and I'm like, okay, suck it up. You got to go forward today. And I'll get in the shower and go, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. Because I wrestle with losing heart every day. He goes, Look, we have this ministry, and it's not based on power, it's based on mercy. Therefore, we do not lose heart. I'm like, I want to lean into that statement every single day. And then he says, because we have this ministry that's based on mercy, not on power, he says, we rejected the manipulative use of power. We don't use secret ways or shameful ways. We don't try and manipulate things. We're not deceptive. No manipulative power. 
Why? Because God, who created light in the darkness, shines in us. That's what he says. Remember the first thing God said in the Bible? Remember the first thing God spoke into this universe? In a dark, chaotic universe, God said, let there be light. That God, that God who created this big bang of light, that God, he wants light to shine in your life. He wants light to shine in my life. That same God, that same kind of light. He wants that to happen in us. But we have this treasure, this light. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's in containers. That's the jar, jar is just containers. Like we, we have it in containers of clay. It's like the containers can be all different sizes. The containers can be all different shapes. They can be all different qualities. But we have this light. We have this amazing treasure and it's in jars of clay. Those containers could be shiny porcelain vases. They could be broken down terracotta pots. But we have this treasure, the light of Christ in jars of clay. So that the power of God that is seen in us is clearly known as coming from God, not from us. See, when we have power, we get in God's way. When we throw around our power, we get in God's way. When we throw it around in a tribal way, like we we talked about last weekend, tribal power, like family power, when we throw that power around, we get in God's way. When we exercise political power, and we band together and go, let's muscle up, let's use our power, we get in God's way. When we, when we throw around our personal power because we have great skill or great education or great height or great, you know, some great gifts, whatever the thing is that we have, we throw that power around, we get in God's way. I struggle with this with Lakeside because I remember the days when we were meeting in the annex of an auto parts store and there'd be 20 or 30 of us on a Sunday morning and I'd come in, you know, <clears throat> I'd come in the office early in the morning to pray to God that somebody would show up that day. And now I look around at what God has done through us and among us, and I go, you know, just, just in terms of volume of people, we have power. And sometimes things happen in our city, and I'm, I'm like, we could use our power. And then God goes, no, no, no. You have this treasure, the light of Christ, in jars of clay. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how numerous you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. We have this power, this gift in jars of clay so that the greatness of the power may be seen to be of God and not of us. When we throw around our power, we get in God's way. We won't think we're getting in God's way. Why not? Because we call ourselves benefactors. That's the story we tell ourselves. I'm just doing it for the best, because we know what's best. Of course we know what's best. But power always thinks it is doing God's work while it is violating all God's laws. 
So what do you do with that? What do we do with that? What do I do with that? Paul says, take that jar of clay that is your life. Take that jar of clay which is your container. And make peace with it. We got all different kinds of containers in the room. Look around. Go ahead. Go ahead, look around. A lot of different containers, right? I mean, some of the containers in here are tall and some are not tall. Some are what I prefer to call Starbucks tall, (laughs) which is the shortest cup in the stack, by the way. You know, some of us are wide, some of us are not wide, some of us, some of us walk ably, some of us limp. We've got all different kinds of issues with our containers. And sometimes our container is frustrating to us. Like, oh, I wish I, I wish I had that gift. I wish I had that height. I wish I had that voice. You know, I wish I had that. And we go, my container's not that great. My life's not that great. My power's not that great. And yet when we try and throw around whatever power we have, we get in God's way. Paul says, make peace with your container. Make peace with that jar of clay that God puts you in. In fact, he may, say, he may take it further and say, revel in that jar of clay that God put you in. Celebrate it. Let God's light shine through it. I don't know what your jar of clay is like. I have an outside perspective of everybody's like you have an outside perspective of mine, but you know your jar of clay differently than I do. I know mine differently than you do. Are you short or broken or wounded or overweight? That may be your jar of clay. Are you divorced? Or separated? Do you stutter? Have a bad history? Have poor social skills? That may be your jar of clay. Do you struggle with addictions to alcohol or substances or pornography or gambling? Are you unemployed or underemployed or underwater in debt? That may be your jar of clay. And sometimes the Lord takes that jar of clay and he reshapes it and he remolds it and he repolishes it out. Just because you're underwater in debt doesn't mean you always have to stay that way, but if you're short, you are going to stay that way. Guess what? Some things God will change and some things he won't change, but those things that you look at and you go, this is a distraction to me. God goes, that just may be your jar of clay. And he said, let light, the God who said, let light shine in the darkness, said, I want to let light shine through your life. And I'm telling you, Paul tells you, it shines most clearly in the parts that are broken. Because the parts that are all fancied up, the parts that are all shined up, make it harder to see God through us because they tend to get in the way. Make peace with your jar of clay. And then let God shine through you in every merciful way he wants. Jesus, I pray for us tonight that we would be people of mercy, that we would be people who know that how you made us 
is how you love us. And certainly we've, we've broken ourselves enough. We've, we've run into enough trouble on our own. Lord, whether there are things you want to change still about us or whether there are things in us that you say, I'm not going to change that one. Whatever those things look like for us, Lord, we want to bow before you. We want to humble ourselves before you to acknowledge that you are our God and you have light to shine through us and that's a treasure. So let us not get distracted with power. Let us not be graspers of power. Let us not be abusers of power, Lord. But may we revel in the jar of clay you've made us and may your light shine through us. We ask in the name of our good Savior, Jesus. Amen.